Second Thessalonians 3, purposed prayer. And we'll be speaking specifically this evening about one facet of prayer. We consider the topic of prayer, and we did so in Sunday morning. It was maybe seven, six or seven months ago now. In many ways, it's one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life, isn't it? It, it demands time. Prayer demands effort. Prayer demands concentration. It is the ultimate exercise in faith. Laying before an unseen God the most tangible and essential elements of our physical, material, temporal lives. Prayer asks us to yield our sufficiency to God's sufficiency, to yield our rights to God's rights, to yield our privileges to God's privileges. Prayer asks us to lay all of these things, our rights and our privileges and our sufficiency, at the feet of God, being totally convinced that He is capable and willing to handle these circumstances in our lives and that He can do so far better than we can handle them ourselves. Prayer is a vast topic which covers so many different concepts. And as I mentioned, we're only going to look at one, uh, one, one aspect of prayer. We'll, we'll do a little bit of review, a little bit of foundational work, but really our focus is going to be on one type of prayer, and specifically that type is going to be praying for ministers. Every week around the world, men stand up behind pulpits and proclaim the Word of God. This proclamation takes many forms. Some of it's preaching, some of it's teaching, some of it is lecture, some of it is interactive, some of it uh, is simple, some of it is creative, some of it's straightforward, some of it's um, complicated. For those who perform this task and do so faithfully and do so accurately, there are some definitive difficulties that confront them. Ministers of the Word of God um, have, have some unique challenges in their lives. And Paul is going to speak about some of those difficulties in Second Thessalonians, and he's going to ask the Thessalonian church to pray for some of those challenges that confront ministers on a regular basis. Before we do so, before we step into that, learning uh, about how to pray for ministers from Second Thessalonians chapter 3, I would like us to take just a few moments and, and review um, what our Savior Jesus Christ teaches us about prayer what it is and what it can do. We're not going to get in depth, but just a few reminders from various passages of Jesus' teaching on specific elements that matter in prayer. If we don't know why we pray, if we don't understand the responsibility that prayer carries with it, if we don't realize the power of prayer, then we will without question fall short of what our prayer lives ought to be. And so as we kind of lay this foundation, we, we learn first of all, or we remember first of all, that prayer must be genuine. Prayer must be genuine. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, and when thou prayest, beginning in verse 5, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, 
they have their reward. We'll pick up from there in just a moment. But this first concept that we need to remember is about genuine prayer. And what I mean by that is that prayer cannot simply be a pretense, something that you do to impress others or to make yourself feel godly or feel spiritual. As with everything in the Christian life, the actions that we do are, are not really the primary concern, are they? The primary concern in our Christian life is not so much our actions, but rather our heart. Now, does God care what we do? Absolutely, He cares what we do. But in the Christian life, our actions are intended to be an extension of our hearts. If our actions are in conflict with our hearts to where we are doing the right things on the outside, but inwardly we are a mess, well, the problem is, see, God is looking at our hearts. And so there is no pleasure in, in God when we are doing outward actions of perceived godliness or spirituality, but our hearts on the inside are rebelling against Him and have no interest in the things of God. Our actions ought to be an extension of our heart. Far more than what you do, God is interested in why you do it. We have spoken about this context or this concept in, in many ways and in many contexts in our church. At Legacy Baptist Church, one of the things that uh, we, we still do to, to one degree or another and, and encourage folks to do is uh, to, to look nice on a Sunday. And we don't do this because our outward appearance is the operative issue, right? It's not that our outward appearance is the big deal. What really matters is the heart behind it. If I get uh, all dressed up on a Sunday so that I can look spiritual, so that I can impress people, or so that I can look down at others who don't dress the way I dress, well, my self-righteous and proud motives are what God sees. God is not interested necessarily in whether or not I'm wearing a tie or whether or not my shoes are shined. But by that same idea, if I take care in my appearance, not for the benefit of those around me, but rather because I truly want to honor the purpose, the occasion upon which we meet, which is to reflect honor and glory into our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, well then my motives are right, and so without question, my efforts on God's behalf do indeed please Him. So too it is with the concept of prayer. If I pray simply because I have to pray, or because I want others to see or hear me pray, because I want them to, to think that I'm spiritual, or because I have some sort of deep-seated feelings of obligation to do so, well, that prayer is little more than just a bunch of words. And this is what he said in verse 5, which we just read. And he continues, Jesus does, in verse 6, and says this, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee, Openly. Now, the point of Jesus' statement here is not to say that public prayers are forbidden or should not be done, but rather that the intent of our prayers should be meaningful communication between us and God. That our prayer, in whatever context it is made, should be a prayer to God, not a prayer for the sake of the people that are around you. One of the things that really bothered me growing up, and maybe this is a little bit... Um, uh, uh, judgmental of me. This might be something I have to work on. But, but what really bothered me, especially when I was in college, um, was preachers that would preach in their prayers. They would, they would pray and they'd say, Lord, 
And then they just get into a homily. And it would be all of this preachy stuff. And it's like, well, why didn't you just finish the sermon if, if you still had sermon left? And then pray to God. Because that's not what prayer is about. Prayer isn't about help these people too, and then you preach to the people in your prayer. about that, that's, that's praying. That's, that's, that's just talking to people in a prayer format. That's not what, what prayer is about. Prayer is about meaningful communication between us and God. Prayer, even if it is corporate, even if it is audible, is a conversation between us and God. I was talking to a, a young man some years ago and he was telling me about his struggles with corporate prayer. He wanted to pray uh, out loud uh, and he, he felt compelled to uh, step up in leadership. He was, he was getting uh, older and desired to become a leader and, and uh, step up and start praying in the assembly. And, and he said, but I just have such a hard time. He said, I've got all these great things in my mind, but when I stand up, my mind goes blank. And I related quite a bit to him. And I told him that I used to have that problem as well. That I would really, really struggle with praying out loud with the idea of others hearing my prayers. And I said, and then one day I realized that um, the reason why I was struggling is because I somehow cared what others thought of my prayers. And I, it, there just came a point where I, I fully understood that, yes, I'm praying out loud, but this is just my prayer to God. And yes, it might encourage some other folks to hear me pray. And yes, it might be a blessing to, to allow, uh, to, to lead in this prayer and allow others to, to confirm my prayers in their heart. And so we're all praying together for the same thing. But this is my prayer to God. And I told him, I said, that solved my problem. Because now it's just me and God, once again. And that's really the way it ought to be. Jesus tells us that the Father which sees the heart, which sees in secret, the one who knows our hearts, that as we pray, not for pretense, not to impress people, but as we pray and come before the Lord with a heart of genuine desire, that that Father which sees in secret will reward us openly. He goes on in verses 7 and 8 to say this, But when ye pray, use not vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. The idea of vain repetition is saying the same thing over and over again every time, thinking that literally the words that you are praying are what matter rather than the expression of your heart to God. Now, this isn't just repeating your prayers. In other words, I typically on a Sunday morning will, will pray for the new requests and old requests and then I'll say a similar thing, right? Which is I'll pray for our government, I'll pray for our church. Vain repetition is not repeating the same prayer. That's called persistence. Vain repetition is when you take words and you repeat them over and over again thinking that somehow these particular words, invoking these words is somehow invoking God's action. It's, it's very similar to what you might see in, in a magician where they think that a spell can actually bring something to pass and so they have to invoke a spell and as they invoke a spell, that as they say certain words, a spell is invoked and something happens. And that's what vain repetition is about, that if I say these certain words in this certain order, perhaps a certain number of times, then God must somehow respond to that, those words in that order, that number of times. 
And that is the concept of vain repetition. This is something that you'll see quite often in liturgical denominations, things like the Catholic Church where they have to repeat the same prayer over and over again, uh, many of them even in a language they don't understand. And yet that's okay to them because they think that it's the, the words themselves that are, that are invoking some sort of power. And that's vain repetition. That's exactly what Jesus was preaching against here. They think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. And then he also mentions that prayer is not about informing God of your needs. Did you know that? There's nothing that you've ever brought to God in prayer that has surprised Him. He's never said, oh, you need that? Oh, okay, well, let me, let me just get right on that. That's, that's never been God's attitude in prayer. Nothing has ever surprised Him. In fact, prayer is not about informing God. Prayer is an exercise of yielding to God. Yielding our will to God, humbling ourselves before God, expressing our reliance upon God, and God's designated way for His children while we are still limited to our flesh and blood, to touch the realm of the spiritual in order to receive our needs and desires. So foundationally, we understand first and foremost that our prayers, when we pray to God, must be genuine. The second thing that I'd like us to remember foundationally this evening is that prayer really does matter. Prayer matters. You say, Pastor, this is very foundational. It is, isn't it? It is foundational, but this stuff is incredibly important. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. We need to remember that prayer matters. When I say that prayer is an exercise of humility and an exercise in reliance, and when we read that God already knows what we need before we ask, these are not intended to be statements of fatalism. I, uh, when I was in college, I was beginning to learn that prayer is about conforming my heart to God's heart, my will to God's will, that prayer is about my submission. It's about my humility. It's about my aligning myself with God. And I had a, a, a professor warn me. I wrote a paper and he warned me. He wrote on there, um, be careful that you don't take this so far as to think that prayer is fatalistic. In other words, that prayer really doesn't matter, that God's will is going to be done whether I pray or not, and prayer is just my opportunity to express, to try to find what God is going to do and express it. That's not the case. It's not as if God has set in stone exactly what He's going to do. Prayer does matter. Prayer can change the heart of God. Prayer can change what happens in the world around us. If we're not careful, we, we come to that idea that prayer doesn't matter, that God is going to do what He's going to do. Because God already knows my needs, I don't need to tell Him about my needs. I don't need to ask Him for my needs. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Nor does it even really make sense from a reasonable perspective, does it? I've given this illustration before, but let's use it again. My daughters. I have a will for my daughters. I desire them to be healthy. I desire them to behave. I desire them to stay safe. That is my overriding will for my children. Now, within that overriding will, there is, however, some flexibility. And so one day, one of my daughters comes up to me and she says, Daddy, may I have a treat? And I think about it, and I think about timing, and well, lunch is over, so it's not going to spoil their lunch, and they've been well-behaved today, and things are going well, and, um, and I, I can't see any reason why not, and you know, I love my daughters, and I, I just, I want them to be happy. And so I say, yes, you may, and I go and I get them 
a treat and I let them have a treat. Now, my daughter is asking. Her petition is not going to change my overriding will. I'm not going to give her a treat if I think it's going to harm her, if it's not going to be good for her, or if it's not the right time, or if it's not the right circumstance. It's not changing my overriding will, but it is changing my actions because I wasn't intending to give her a treat. But she asked for a treat, and now, because she asked, I said, yes, I can do that for you. And that's kind of like prayer. Prayer is not us changing God's overall direction. We're not going to be able to pray our way into uh, things that God doesn't want for us. Uh, we're not going to be able to pray our way into getting the lusts of our heart. We're not going to be able to pray our way into uh, in indulging our materialistic fantasies. We're not going to be able to pray our way out of things that God is doing in our lives to test us or to prove us or to try us or to grow us. But within the midst of God's grand overarching will, there are prayer does have the capacity to change individual circumstances within that overarching will. And so Jesus says, beginning in verse 7 of Matthew 7, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened you, unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask of him? God gives these good things to them that ask of him. Prayer really does matter. Jesus would also say this in Matthew 21, 21 and 22. Verily I say unto you, if ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done unto the, to the fig tree, the disciples had seen the fig tree wither at Jesus' command, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be, ca be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And he went on to say, and all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. So Jesus tells his disciples that through prayer, they can have tremendous power. Prayer matters. We taught on prayer not many months ago and mentioned that this statement of asking and receiving is still contingent upon asking for things that are in line with the will of God, as we mentioned. That God is not our divine tooth fairy. That God is not our divine department store. If we ask for the purpose of consuming upon our own lusts, God will not regard those prayers. But what we do see here is Jesus teaching that things happen when you pray. And that's what we need to understand foundationally this evening. That prayer must be genuine, but that prayer truly does matter. In Matthew 17, Jesus cast out a demon that the disciples could not and when they said, why could we not cast this one out? Jesus' final answer was, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. 
Uh, one night, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he spent the night in prayer petitioning the Father that if it would be according to his will, that the cup of God's wrath might be able to pass from him, that there might be some other way of redemption. He ye- was yielding himself to the will of the Father. And as he came to that place, uh, where he finally just said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He goes to see his disciples and they are asleep and he wakes them up and he says, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest ye fall into temptation. He knew the temptations that were about to come upon the disciples and his advice to them if they were going to overcome the temptations that they were about to face, if they were going to make it through, was to pray. Was to pray. Now, with these important foundational aspects in mind, let's take a look together at 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Paul introduces this last bit of teaching in the book with a strong request Indicated in the original Greek as an imperative request, brethren, pray, please pray for us. Now, we spoke this morning in our message in 1 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12 about the importance as ministers of truth about praying for those to whom we minister. That as you are ministers to your children, that to your siblings maybe or to your neighbors or to your community or whoever it might be, that you would recognize that you are a tool in the hand of the Master. The Master, the Lord Jesus Christ and His Father, are the ones that are making things happen through the Holy Spirit. And the example all throughout Scripture is that spiritual effectiveness comes through labored prayer. Where there is prayer, there is spiritual power. Where there is no prayer, there is no spiritual power. You can know everything about the Bible. You can be charismatic. You can be convincing. You can make a physical impact upon the people around you. But on the authority of God's Word, if you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in your ministry, then you are not making a spiritual impact on people. And the only real capacity that we have to influence the spiritual realm is through prayer. It is the way that God has ordained humans to touch the spiritual. Prayer is the lifeblood of a believer's ministry. Prayer is the lifeblood of the New Testament church. All throughout the scriptures, we see fantastic lessons on prayer. <coughs> Excuse me. Moses prayed for Israel, and God withheld judgment. Samuel we read just this morning, was so urgent in the necessity to pray for Israel that he said if he ceased to pray for Israel, that it would be a sin in the eyes of God. Daniel prayed so earnestly for God to show him what was happening or what would happen in the nation of Israel that God sent an angel to reveal to Daniel more about the end times events than any other Old Testament prophet was ever given. Jesus, God's only begotten Son, would regularly set Himself apart to pray. The Holy Spirit came upon the 120 on the day of Pentecost as they were praying in the upper room. Peter was released from prison as believers were in a house all night praying for Him. 
And here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul, who has already told the church in chapter 1, verse 11, that he is praying always for them, is imploring them that they would now pray for him and for his fellow ministers. We at Legacy Baptist Church spend one Sunday evening one month, and amazingly, uh, I didn't plan this. It's just the way it worked out. I would have switched it if it didn't work out this way, but this is the week that we pray for ministers. This is our minister week. And if, if it hadn't been that way, I would have made it that way, but it was that way already, which was kind of neat. We pray once a month for the needs of ministers, for missionaries, for evangelists, for pastors. And I know you know this, but it bears emph- emphasis that we don't do this just so that we can have another theme to our prayers. We don't pray for ministers just to fill up time. We do it because ministers and ministries need constant prayer. If you were Satan, you're not. Thank the Lord. If you were Satan, though, let's get into the mind of the enemy for a second. I think Sun Tzu liked to talk about that, getting into the mind of the enemy. So if you get into the mind of the enemy and you were thinking, how can I maximize my effectiveness of destroying the work of God in a city or destroying the work of God in a culture, what would your attack plan be? Who would you most likely attack? What would be more harmful to the gospel of Jesus Christ? All things being equal. Successful attack on a church member or successful attack on the church pastor. All things being equal, which would be more harmful to the gospel? A collapse of a life in the church or a collapse of the church itself? One more question for us. If you knew you could make a difference, getting out of the mind of the enemy here, if you knew that you could make a difference in someone's spiritual life, a difference between success or failure, would you take the time and the effort to do what was necessary to make that difference? If you knew that you could make a difference in the success or failure of someone's spiritual life, would you do what is necessary to help make that difference? If you knew that you could make a difference in the effectiveness of your church, of your pastor, and of the ministries of the church, would you take the time and the effort to do so? If you knew that prayer could make this difference, that the need is far more spiritual than it is physical, would you pray? Paul is nowhere near the church of Thessalonica. They can't help him. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't help your ministry physically, that you shouldn't be a physical part of your ministry. Thank the Lord that you're here tonight. If you weren't a physical part of this ministry, I'd be up here preaching to myself and to whoever listens on the internet. So it's, it's, you need to be a, part, a physical part of the ministry, but, but there's a spiritual component, isn't there? There's a spiritual component to what happens here on Sundays that your pastor can't fully influence. I can influence to some degree the spirit. Uh, through We can influence it through the, the songs that we choose. We can influence it through perhaps the scripture reading. We can influence it through our memory work for the month. I can influence it through the spirit of my preaching. But that only goes so far. See, the rest of it has to do with the Holy Spirit. 
The rest of it has to do with God's part in our meeting together on any given uh, Sunday, on any given Tuesday evening. Uh, whenever we meet together, the, the, the rest of what is happening here and what is happening here spiritually has to be a God thing. Which means we influence it most directly through prayer. Jesus taught His disciples to pray. Jesus asked His disciples to pray. Paul presents prayer as the underlying theme of the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. The thing that enables us to stand against the unseen world. And here we see Paul urgently asking the church that as he prays for them, so too they would pray for him. So how do we pray for ministers? What should our prayers consist of? Paul helps us with that as well. We could go to some other passages of Scripture where Paul asks for prayer. He asks for prayer for boldness in 2 Timothy 1. He asks for for various other prayers throughout other passages of Scripture, but we're not going to do that this evening. We're just going to stay in the text and we're going to look at the text. So he says here in verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And this, so this first prayer, this first request that Paul says, pray for ministers, pray for me in this regard, is that the word of God would have free course and that the word of God would be glorified in the lives of others. I will never forget the first time I truly experienced the concept of spiritual <clears throat> resistance to the word of God. My friend and I were uh, down in Florida and we were going out, passing out tracts and knocking on doors and ministering to a low-income community. It was government-subsidized housing and what we would do is we would go down there and we'd pick up trash because these people didn't pay for anything and so they just trashed their community. I mean, there was just trash everywhere, especially on a Saturday morning. And so we were out there and we were picking up trash in these communities and I'll never forget, normally there was a lot of receptivity. Young people would come up and they'd talk with us and uh, little kids would bring balls and we'd, we'd throw a ball around with them and, and people would be willing to engage about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this Saturday morning, was, everything was just hard as a rock. And as my, my friend and I were speaking, we truly felt as though there was a spiritual oppression. It was, it was not necessarily that physically the people weren't around or that physically anything had changed. The people even knew us, but there was something spiritual going on and it it was as if there was a spiritual wall up between us and the people with which we spoke to. And that was the first time I, I realized, I noticed a true spiritual resistance to the Word of God. And this fact is implied in Paul's request here that if he desires the church to pray that the Word of God would have freedom to go forth into the hearts of men, then there must be the possibility that the Word of God can be hindered in the hearts of men. And what is it that can hinder the Word of God? Well, the hardness of men's hearts can hinder the Word of God. All throughout both the Old and the New Testament, we find the reality that men have the capacity to harden their hearts to the Word of God. And through the act of uh, free will, men can blind their own hearts to the truth. We see this pervasively in Jesus' ministry, right? The man at the pool of Bethesda has had an infirmity for 38 years. He is healed. 
He picks up his bed and he walks, but it's the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees and scribes, no doubt they've seen this man. No doubt they knew he was at the pool of Bethesda. And they're not at all concerned or touched by the fact that this man has just been healed, but they are sure upset that he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. A blind man sees, and the scribes and the Pharisees don't spend the time wondering how a man blind from birth could see. They spend their time wondering why a man would do such a thing on the Sabbath day. Lazarus is raised from the dead, and the only thing in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees is how can we kill this man? The Holy Spirit of God can cut through this hardness. But it's a hardness, isn't it? It's a willing ignorance, a willing hardness in the hearts of men. But God can overcome this resistance in the hearts of men. And one of the ways that this hardness can be overcome is through the passionate and persistent prayer of God's saints. The year was 1727. A Moravian community... The Moravians uh, have uh, our, our roots, the, the Baptist roots can be traced back through uh, the Scandinavian Moravian brethren and such. And a Moravian community decided that they were going to start a round-the-clock prayer vigil. And so members of this uh, small community, it was a community of about 300 men, or 300 people, and they, they of course, had one church in that community. And, and so they started a rotation. And for one hour a day, on a rotation, 24 hours a day, there would be somebody praying. This prayer vigil, 24-hour prayer vigil, ended up lasting continuously for 100 years. For 100 years, 24 hours a day, in this Moravian community, somebody was praying to God. Within that 100 years, from that community, as it grew, 300 missionaries were sent around the world. From, uh, it, it was within this time period as well that the Great Awakening took place. Now, you think about these concepts. Is there a correlation between 300 missionaries going out in a 100-year, 24-hour prayer vigil? Is there a correlation between the Great Awakening and a 100-year, 24-hour prayer vigil? Well, we can't prove it. But to say that there's not would be to reject everything we know about power of prayer in Scripture. And that brings us perhaps to the reason why we don't pray as we should. Why maybe you don't pray for ministers as you should. Why maybe I don't pray for this church as I should. Because oftentimes prayer is a long-term endeavor without immediate quantifiable results, isn't it? When I build a house, I can pillow my head at night having looked at the house and seen the work of the day. That wasn't up there yesterday and now it's up there today. I got all that wiring strung through or, or I got the pipes in place or whatever it might be. Something happened and, and I know, okay, something happened today and that something happening, that visual improvement, I look at pictures of two weeks ago and I look at them now and I say, look, things are happening and that motivates me to continue. That doesn't always happen in our prayers, does it? Sometimes it does. We, we pray for something and God answers that request and praise the Lord and, and you need to share those things because that keeps us going, doesn't it? You need to share answers to prayer. But I pray for a soul of a family member for years 
and I'm not seeing the effects. I pray for wisdom, but I, I can't quantify the effects of that. I pray for my children. I've Every night since they were born, all three of my children, I've prayed that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and that they would grow up to love the Lord with all of their heart, souls, and might. I've prayed that prayer every day now for three and a half years. But that's a long-term request. I, I, I'm not going to be able to quantify it until one day, by God's grace, it happens. Until I can look back and see it. See, prayer must see by faith what the eye cannot see. Prayer relies upon the power and promises of an unseen God to work in ways that may be seen, but may also be unseen. Prayer demands faith not just in God's ability to work, but also in God's timing and God's methods. See, prayer needs to trust that God can do what we're asking. But prayer also needs to understand that God's method of doing what we're asking and God's timing in what we're asking may not be the same as ours. When I pray for my children to grow up to love God with all of their hearts and souls and mights, might, my desire, my thought in that prayer is that one day they're going to be listening to the Word of God preached or listening to uh, someone proclaim the Word of God in song, and they're just going to be overwhelmed with the desire to give themselves wholly to God for whatever He has for them. That's my thought as to how it's going to work. But you know, God might not see it that way. God might have a different path to complete commitment. Maybe it is, God forbid, but maybe it is that God will, will bring my daughters about to full commitment through a health problem. Maybe it is that God will bring about my, my answer to prayer and their full commitment to Him through uh, a devastating loss in their life. And though I wouldn't pray for a health problem or a devastating loss in my life, far be it from me to understand the wisdom of God in answering my prayer and the methods He'll use to do it. If God answering my prayer for them to become young ladies that love God with all their hearts and souls and might require something like that to become that factor in their life that compels them to serve Christ, well, that is an answer to my prayer, is it not? And so God, he, we need to believe that He can do it, but we also need to remember that, that the way God answers prayer may not always be the way we would think that we would answer our prayer, right? We, 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 we pray not just with, with uh, the, the answer in mind, but kind of the how. Okay, God, um, I'm praying for um, you to supply my every need, and so clearly what I'm praying for is that you would give me a, um, a job that pays a lot of money and I don't have to worry about money anymore. But maybe that's not how God sees the, the answer to the request to pray for provision. Maybe God says provision is going to come in another way, through another choice. And so we must trust. We must trust God can do it. We must trust that His way of doing it is perfect. We must trust His timing is perfect. And so Paul implores the church, keep praying. And pray, he says, for the effectiveness of the Word of God, that it would enter into the hearts of people, that it would have free course. Literally, you see the, the Greek word means to run, that the Word of God would be able to run, would be able to move, would be able to, to, to touch the hearts of people. 
would be able to cut through the hardness of hearts. Pray that others would receive the Word of God in the same manner, he says, that you received the Word of God. He says, you heard the Word of God, Thessalonian believers, and you threw yourself into obedience, hook, line, and sinker. He says, pray that others would do that as well. Pray for the effectiveness of the Word of God. He has a second request, though, in verse 2. He says, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. There's something interesting that happens when God begins to answer that first prayer, the Word of God beginning to impact the lives of people. The prayer for the Word of God to go forth into the world with power and effectiveness has a side effect. As the Word of God begins to shake up communities, shake up lives, change the status quo, as darkness loses its power and the the light of God's Word begins to shine brighter and brighter, it makes people uncomfortable. And for those who submit themselves to the Word of God, this is a time of great joy. But for those who do not submit themselves to the Word of God, they get very angry, don't they? When the Word of God begins to shine forth into the darkness of their hearts. And this anger is without question, uh, in truth, directed toward God and directed toward Jesus Christ. But God is unseen and the Bible is a book. And so their anger, while it is in fact directed at God, tends to be pointed toward the ministers of God's word, those who are declaring the truth. This anger can be fierce. It can be relentless even unto death. And Paul's prayer for protection is a natural extension of his prayer for ministry effectiveness. Uh, in, in many ways, as you read the Gospels, uh, I mean the Epistles, it seems as though the Thessalonian church was one of Paul's greatest spiritual victories. Those people were deeply persecuted and maintained a deep faith and reliance upon Jesus Christ. He likely would have called it one of the greatest spiritual victories in Thessalonica. But do you know what else Thessalonica was? It was one of the most dangerous places Paul ever went. So dangerous he had to leave quickly, far quicker than he ever anticipated. And the Jews of Thessalonica chased him to Berea and got him run out of Berea as well. These people were angry. These people were violent. And these people brought great violence to those who stayed in Thessalonica. The message went forth with power and with that power came many wicked and unreasonable evil men desiring to quench the message of the truth. The more powerful God's word goes forth, the more enemies of God's message and his messengers will accumulate. Lives are being changed for the better and they will hate you for it. You know, I've always marveled at the hate that Christianity has in society and it's getting worse, isn't it? the hatred that people have for Christianity. And, and, and it's, it's such an irony because we think of a good Christian family. We raise our children to be kind, hardworking, patient, honest, truthful. And as we raise our children to be these kind of stellar citizens, there are many in our society who would call us child abusers because we are uh, inflicting unreasonable mental and emotional manipulation upon our children's impressionable minds. 
A girl gets pregnant out of wedlock and chooses to kill her baby and society cheers her on. A woman chooses to save herself for her husband and society mocks her. A person burns a Bible and society applauds and calls it their expression of free speech. The same person gets up and preaches that Bible and society calls it hate speech. We have a very backwards society because man's heart is very backwards through sin. These are what the Bible calls unreasonable and wicked men, men who do not have faith. And to a minister of the gospel, these men are dangerous because ministers will feel the brunt of their wrath. So Paul says, pray for us. Pray that the word of God would go forth with power. Pray that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Pray for our safety. Pray for the power of the gospel. Now, Paul is not giving these requests out of a particular concern. And he makes this clear by his statement in verse 3. He says, But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. He says, The Lord is faithful. Paul is confident that in the same manner he is asking for prayer, that they would pray for him, that he is also praying for them. That as he's praying for the word of God to go forth with power in their hearts and lives, and he's praying that the Lord would deliver them from wicked and unreasonable men, he's asking for the same prayer. And he says, "The, the confidence of my heart, Thessalonian believers, is that God is faithful. And because I believe that God is faithful, that God is going to be faithful to answer my prayers to give you effectiveness of the Word of God and to give you protection from unreasonable men. And because God is faithful, I'm asking you to pray the same prayer for me. Basically, Paul's request for prayer is a very real echoing of his own prayers for them. And he wants this confidence, this confidence in God's faithfulness to rub off on them so that they'll continue persistent in those prayers. And then he says in verse 4, he says, And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things that we command you. Paul was being obedient to the Scriptures. He was being faithful in prayer. He knew that God would be faithful because God is always faithful to hear and answer according to His pleasure and according to His promises. And he desires that they would show themselves faithful as well. Humans are not puppets on a string. Humans are free moral agents. Paul could not force them to do anything spiritually, just as I cannot force you to do anything spiritually, and you cannot force anyone else to do anything spiritually. Spiritual decisions are heart decisions, and they must be made by our own free will. But Paul did pray for them, and he did have confidence that his prayers were going to be answered in their faithful obedience to him. The need for us to uphold ministers in prayer is no less real or potent than what Paul is expressing here. The strength of our ministry hinges upon the prayers of its people. As your pastor, I deeply need your prayers. Spiritual success is not built on the back of my labor. Do I, do I work? I do. Do I try? I do. Do I spend time and effort and my own prayer? I do. But spiritual success is built on our knees as we pray and labor in prayer unto God. We finish our exposition tonight in verse 5 
Paul says, And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. The purpose of all this is that their hearts would be aligned with God's heart, that they would be directed into his love and into a patient and faithful waiting for his return. Of course, chapter 2 is all about the return of Jesus Christ, the end times, the Antichrist, the day of the Lord and when it would come and that we are not appointed unto wrath and the restrainer and all of those fantastic teachings and contrasting that with the church, but you are not like that church. You are not like the unbelievers who are damned to the wrath of God. You have been saved from this. You have a, a home in heaven. You have a rejoicing to look forward to. All of that. And he says, now pray for us. Yes, that's coming one day. Yes, the Lord is coming back for you one day. But until that day, we've got work to do and I need your help in this work. Pray. Pray for the word to go forth with power. Pray for protection from unreasonable and wicked men. You know, Legacy Baptist Church is not on this earth to build a kingdom. Legacy Baptist Church is not on this earth. We have no aspirations unto being famous or being powerful. But we do want to influence the hearts of men. And we do want to please God while we patiently wait for the return of Jesus Christ. But being busy always isn't always an action thing. Sometimes it's just a time thing. An hour of prayer doesn't involve a whole lot of movement. You may not have sore muscles at the end, maybe sore knees depending on where you're praying and how. But it sure is an awful lot of work. You'll know that you've labored. And as we close this evening, you know, this morning we talked about the privilege that we have in the capacities that we minister to pray for our ministries. This evening, it's simply turning that around. Three ways that you can be praying for your minister. Praying for me. Praying for other ministers that you know. Pray for faithfulness. Pray for the Word of God to go forth with power. Pray for protection. The first way that you can pray for ministers is to pray for our faithfulness. This was an implied element of Paul's request here. He did ask specifically prayer for faithfulness. I mentioned 2 Timothy 1. Also in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, Pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, Pray for me for boldness, that I may say the things that I know I need to say, that I may do the things I know I need to do. Pray that I will maintain faithfulness. You know, every minister needs these prayers. I hope that's readable to some degree. That he would keep the main thing the main thing. That he would keep proper priorities. That he would be focused and protected from the temptation of, and spiritual attacks of this world. The image you see on the screen is some statistics about pastors. As you read these, take note that some of these reveal that pastors have some serious spiritual issues. And the spiritual issues, some of the things on this list truly do disqualify these men for ministry. But that aside, look at these statistics. Pastors battle discouragement. 97% of pastors have been betrayed or falsely accused or hurt by trusted friends. 80% of pastors feel discouraged. 94% of pastors' families feel the pressure of ministry. 78% of pastors have no close friends. 90% of pastors report working 55 to 75 hours a week. 
Pastors particularly, at least as I have experienced it, one of the, the things as I've battled with my own struggles for discouragement, through discouragement and pressure, has been that feeling of being very alone. We all are blessed to have people that relate to us, that we can talk to. My wife and Robin had a meeting with homeschool moms this past week, and what a blessing it is to be able to socialize with people that understand what you're going through and can help you. And pastors need that too. Some places it's easier than others. Uh, Out here it's not that easy. I do oftentimes kind of feel like an island out here, very lonely. And there's some pastors nearby that I'm friends with. When we can make our schedules work, we can get together. But it can be very lonely. And sometimes that slows you down because you don't have that reminder that there's other people that are out there doing the work too. That there's other people that are struggling with the same struggles you struggle with. That there's other people that are having to work through the same things that you're working through. And so, in the same way you might struggle as a homeschool mom or, or uh, as, a, um, as a parent and, and just want to talk to another parent or, or in your profession, just want to talk to someone else that can relate to you, whatever it might be, those same struggles happen with pastors. Only we're dealing with eternal souls for our work. When we lose somebody, we don't just lose a client we lose a soul. And that's a heavy weight. These are all good reasons to be praying for ministers. But they are also good reasons for ministers to be praying for themselves. It's not just about you praying for us. It's about our need to be in prayer as well. But truly, your part can be served through simply being faithful to pray for your pastor. So pray for faithfulness. Second, do pray for the word of God to go forth with power. My wife can testify to the fact that the hardest Sundays for me are the ones where, it's not not the ones where I'm most tired. It's not the ones even where I feel like my thoughts weren't fully collected. The hardest Sundays for me are the ones where I felt like I didn't, that the word of God didn't go forth with power where I feel like I I hit a bunch of stone walls, where the message that I desired to deliver, maybe it wasn't delivered well, or or maybe whatever it might be, but, but when there is that spiritual barrier, and I just feel as though... Uh, people sat in the seats and they said, when is this going to be over? And then it, they, they got up and they left and there was seemingly no impact. Those are the hardest ones. When I look around and I, I just I, I see no reaction to what's being preached. Now, I know the Word of God is powerful. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 assures me that the Word of God is powerful. So when the Word of God is powerful, but it's not going forth with power, I know that there's something deeper going on. There's a spiritual problem. Maybe it's in my heart, or maybe it's in the hearts of the hearers. Somehow the Word of God is being hindered. So what we need to be doing before every Sunday and Tuesday night is praying and asking God that the Word of God would go forth with power. When we have our door-knocking evenings... We need to be praying that the Word of God would go forth with power. 
when we go pass out tracts at a parade or whenever we might go out and evangelize, we need to pray that the Word of God would go forth with power, that the Holy Spirit would be preparing hearts, that barriers would be broken down, that circumstances would bring people to the point where they recognize the importance of the Word of God as it's being delivered. We should pray for such things. It's right to pray for these things. It's right to pray that the Word of God would have free course. My friend, missionary over in Japan, he uh, was having a, a very hard time with a particular area of evangelism, uh, an area where he was evangelizing, and he was talking to his fiance about it. And he was saying it's, it's a very hard area and people just aren't responding. And, and he, he was telling me this and he said, you know, she gave me some of the most simple and best advice. He said, she asked me, well, have you prayed for them? He said, you know, I really hadn't. He said, I'd gone forth and I did the work, but I hadn't been on my knees praying that the word of God would go forth with power. He said, so the next time I didn't even evangelize in the community. He said, I walked through the community praying and asking God to prepare hearts. And then I went back and started ministering in the community again. And he did indeed find success. Pray that the word of God would go forth with power. Third and finally, pray for protection for ministers. The idea of protection is clearly in Second Thessalonians 3, physical protection. We could talk about spiritual protection as well, but clearly a physical protection idea here. There's no doubt in the minds of most true and faithful ministers that there's coming a day in this country where physical protection will be needed for us where um, men who are willing to stand upon the Word of God and preach it without um, conforming it to some humanistic idea of what the Word of God ought to say will find themselves in jail, will find themselves persecuted, will find themselves um, perhaps physically harmed. The more society rejects even the presence of biblical truth, the more hostile they will become, become toward those that proclaim it. It's not enough for society just to reject or ignore or marginalize the message of the gospel. The unbelieving world is deeply compelled and always has been to destroy the message of the gospel and all of its adherents in the same way that they destroyed our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this means that ministers need prayer for protection. Now, uh, for the American church right now, that prayer is minimal. I might get some doors slammed in my face. I might have some people at the jail get angry at me. Uh, I might have some people walk out. We had someone walk out uh, a few months ago from the, the church service. They were Lutheran and they were deeply offended by um, what I had to say about salvation. So those things can happen. But, you know, in other parts of the world, ministers are going through great suffering right now. We think of Pastor Saeed Abedini, who has been in an Iranian prison now for, as of today, 1,040 days. And he has been in prison for that long because he holds to a Christian faith in the Muslim nation. No other charges against him than heresy because he's a Christian. I think of someone like missionary Paul Allen, who ministers in the jungles of Papua New Guinea where he's surrounded by witch doctors who hate him, who seek to curse him, who have the power to command people to kill and power to command people to do 
really whatever they want them to do. These men need your prayers today. These men are at risk today. These men are being threatened by unreasonable and wicked men who do not have faith today. And we're going to close tonight. We're not really going to have a sila as such. We're just going to step right into our prayer time. We haven't done our prayer time. And I'm going to go ahead and just lead us this evening in a prayer for ministers. And it's, it's my hope and my desire that uh, we wouldn't just be praying for ministers once a month. I know we read the letters on Tuesday evenings and, and then we, we focus in on some of those ministers when we read those letters and that's good. But my desire is that as you take those missionary prayer cards from the back table and as you, you get the, the monthly newsletter which has every missionary we've had come through these doors on it, uh, and their, their particular field of service, that you would be going through that list. Go through that list once a week with your family. Go through that list and pray for the needs of these ministers. Go through the list of pastors that you know in the area who are faithfully serving God and pray for them and ask God to help them to be faithful. I pray that the Word of God would go forth with power through their ministry and pray that they'd be protected from unreasonable and wicked men that do not have faith. Let's be fervent. Let's be consistent prayers for the ministries and ministers that are sharing the gospel in truth and accuracy with this lost and dying world. Let's pray together.